It's that time of the week again. It's flat out RC podcast time. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. And we're talking all things radio control. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. Almost felt like saying RC cars, but we're not going to talk RC cars. We could, but we're not. Anyway, I do like RC cars. I've got actually every RC kind of vehicle from boats to cars to sailing boats got sailing boat uh so i do love all things radio control but we're talking planes helis and drones uh this week we are look really focusing on how to become a better pilot and uh michael timms is joining us michael's been on the podcast before so um and in that podcast i said oh i need to get you back to talk about flying so i'll talk a bit more about that later as i try to find the words uh, but before I, we get to Michael, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, what has been on my mind? A lot has been on my mind. Uh, one of the I want to tell you about the Shepherd and Mammoth event that's coming up in the middle of September. So there's just a heads up. Um, you can go to the Valley Radio Flyers website to find out more information but in the middle of September that middle weekend I think it's around the 18th or something like that 17 18 something like that um, is the Shepherd and Mammoth event it is Australia's biggest large-scale fun fly event uh, and I just want to put it on the radar because it's coming up and I am gonna be there that is my aim that is my intention I'm trying to convince my son to come and help me I'm gonna take some video and take some photographs and all that kind of stuff because the best of the best models are there and it's looking okay. So uh, Shepherd and Mammoth event at the Valley Radio Flyers Club down here in Victoria. If you're into aero modeling, you know this event. Um, but uh, it is a good event. Um, so starting to talk about that. So this is just an intro to it. Middle weekend of September. Start looking at your calendars and blank it out. I'll give you more information next week. Uh, one other thing I want to mention, I had a chat with... Ian Howard from Desert Aircraft Australia, um, because Carl Bison last week mentioned that Desert Aircraft Australia are now going to be the Jet Cat turbine agents in Australia. And I rang up Ian just to double check, because I said, we're going to let the cat out of the bag. Is that okay? And Ian's an awesome guy. Uh, and Desert Aircraft Australia, a great, great uh, business as well. And he did say, yes, that is correct. Uh, and I said, well, I'll, I'll mention it on the podcast to just double check and confirm that um, Desert Aircraft Australia are going to be bringing jet cap motors uh, and I think potentially even servicing them as well. But there's a, a, don't rush. Um, they, they're waiting for stock to come in. There'll be a bigger announcement coming from them, so stay tuned. But I can confirm to all you jet cat owners down in Australia, Desert Aircraft Australia will be the uh, jet cat distributor. They'll have some spare parts and things like that. So, um Ian's looking forward to getting into that, learning more about turbines. Ian's really good with with model engines. Um, done a lot of work with, uh, of course, Desert Aircraft Engines, does all the repairs and that kind of thing. Um, he's very good with electronics as well. As I was actually, uh, he, he, he de- designs and um, manufactures the Desert Aircraft ignition modules. So a uh, good Australian connection there, smart guy. So can confirm that he's the JetCat distributor. And speaking of JetCat, um, People joke about me talking about my jet. Yes, I do have a jet, but many have got jets now. Roads lead to jets. I crashed my jet, as you know. You've seen the YouTube video, um, but I'm in the midst of replacing that jet. 
my Jetcat turbine was sent back to Germany to get double checked. I did munch the sort of the starter motor at the front of the turbine, but I wanted to get the whole engine checked out uh, after it hitting the ground at a pretty pretty heavy pace. Uh, and I uh, got the quote back and paid all that, and uh, I've got a new model that I've paid for as well that is in manufacturer. So uh, the, the wheels are in motion to replace that turbine, but it got me, to, it got me thinking about uh, how much we spend on aero modelling. And I was looking at the repair bill and sort of the, you know, the replacement of that crash turbine, and let's just say it ain't a cheap exercise crashing turbine planes. Uh, and and I'm very I'm a bit conservative. You know, I see this hobby as exactly that. It's a hobby. It's a leisure time activity for me, and I've got a mental limit of how much I'm willing to spend because there's lots of things that I spend money on in life, as we all do, including food, which is important, and accommodation. But there's other other aspects of my life where I need to spread the money. And and I, I the question is really today that's on my mind is how much are you willing to spend? on your hobby. Now, I suppose it comes back to how important the hobby is to you in your life. I always get concerned when I see any hobby become sort of the dominant force in someone's life because it can sort of take over their life. I, one thing I, I notice that people that are, are very big into a hobby, uh, that commit a lot of their time and their money into it, can become extremely passionate and with passion can come angst and frustration with other people and that kind of stuff that might not share the same level of passion. And and I've seen a lot of people in, in various different fields, I'm not just talking about modeling here, that when you get to that point, sometimes you fall out of, of the hobby because it just becomes all too too overwhelming and uh, people go in a different direction. And, we're, and you know, if you've been around long enough in various different activities, you can see that. And so for me, I see aero modeling as just one thing that I do and one interest that I have and an interest that I'm very kind of in love with in a kind of way, but I will draw the line of how much money I'm willing to commit to that hobby because, as I said, lots of other things to spend money on. Uh, You know, I was talking to a secretary of a flying club and we're talking about membership fees and... You know, he was saying that the membership fee for the club was $120. And I'm like, gee, that's really cheap. Like $120 spend on aero modeling to be able to go to a flying field and fly is really, really cheap compared to buying a 6S LiPo battery. A 6S 5,000 milliamp hour LiPo battery can cost more than your yearly membership, right? And that doesn't stack up in my mind when you have to have you have to maintain the field, buy petrol, maintain mowers and machinery, build infrastructure such as you know covered pit areas and sheds to store your maintenance equipment, and sometimes you know barbecue to cook some sausages and and, and things like that. And then you know the ongoing maintenance because it's a piece of it's a paddock, and paddocks actually need maintenance. You know, at some point in time, they might need to redo the strip and re-sow grass or you name it, it's, you know, put power in so that you can charge batteries and stuff like that. $120 in the whole scheme of things, where we've got people going buying $10,000 jets plus and having multi, multiples of them, and you, you can't really buy a model for $120. $120 membership. Most flying clubs, their membership fees are pretty low. Yes, we've got to pay our association fees, which give us something in return, insurance. But even then, if you add up our membership fees, and our insurance fees, 
it's minuscule. So I don't have an issue in spending money on memberships to a number of different clubs. Uh, and um, But when it comes to model aeroplanes, I can draw the line. So for example, I can't bring, this is me, it's only me talking here. And my, my, my thing is that I'd struggle to spend over $10,000 on a model. That's a lot of money. You know why? Because I could buy a motorbike for that much. Some physical thing that, you know, yes, I can crash it, but I proved that I am capable of crashing model aeroplanes. And that, it, all the expense that I had in that aeroplane was pretty much diminished. And I've got to replicate that plus more because I, I bought that jet at a really good price. That uh, I've got to, uh, it's going to cost me a lot of money. So membership fees I'm okay with. I think that some membership fees need to go up, factoring in rising costs of fuel. Uh, just the general work that's required to create a really nice flying environment. I think that we should not skimp on on that side of things, especially when we're struggling to get volunteers. We might get into an era where we have to pay for people to come in and help us sort some things out at our fields. So that I'm okay with. But yeah, how much are you willing to spend? I don't know. I know some people spend a lot. Some people spend a little. I probably find myself in the middle of the road. Anyway. Hit me up, send me a message, love to know. Love to get some feedback on how you determine how much to spend and uh, uh, on the hobby. And it's not about how much you earn, it's about how much you spend because we can spend our money on lots of things like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. It is guest time, my favourite part of the podcast because I'm sick of hearing my own voice all the time. So, and you probably are as well. But we have Michael Timms coming to join us. Now, Michael Timms was a guest that I had on a while back who, he, he lives in Mildura. He's a pilot for Qantas at Qantas Link. Uh, and when I interviewed him, he really gave us a lot of insight as to some of his tips when it came to, came to flying. He was very articulate in the way that he explain different facets of flying and I said well I need to get you back on and we'll do a session just talking about flying and some of his sort of tips because I thought that he articulated it really well now you can listen to the if, if you're a, a, a new pilot you're going to get a lot of value if you're an existing pilot keep on listening because you, like I've been flying for a while and I'm not the best pilot I will claim to be on video but I'm not <laughs> but I got a lot out of it. There's a lot of tips there that you'll get from this chat that I had with Michael Timms. As I said, a very articulate man, knows a lot about flying, knows a lot about flying model airplanes, taught a lot of people. So here's my chat with the one and only Michael Timms. You'll learn a thing or two. We have a return guest on this week's episode of the Flat Out RC podcast, and it's Michael Timms, who's joining us once again, hailing from Mildura. But Michael, where are you currently sitting? Okay, Andrew, I'm in my hotel room in Sydney. Hotel room in Sydney. That is because you are a pilot for Qantas, for Qantas Link, isn't it? Qantas Link on the Dash 8 turboprops, yep. Yep. And so we, when I had a chat with you last time, you, you gave us some really good flying tips. And in that episode, I said you were, I wanted to have you back. Because I'm a man of my words, I got you back, yep. and I got you back because today what we're going to do is a bit of like a, a flying lesson. Now, for anyone you know that thinks that they've mastered everything, 
stay tuned because there might be a few tips and tricks that that Michael gives you because I found that he's very good at articulating different aspects of flight. So I've pumped your tyres up, Michael, so don't let me down. (laughs) Not a problem. I I guess the first thing I could probably um, talk about, I suppose, is um, I, I bring a lot of my beliefs and teachings from what I do in teaching people to fly the full size stuff because that's what I'm doing 24-7 at the moment. So, yeah, having good practices and policies and all that sort of stuff and consistently doing the same thing over and over again really builds consistency and allows you to change or see if little changes make a big difference to what you're doing. So that's sort of the philosophy behind how I teach. Yeah, well, it's and that's why you know I value your opinion, and I think you know I've mentioned before my brother's an airline pilot as well, and and you look at all pilots, and I was actually I was talking to someone through work about this is that imagine if you run an airline and you've got a fleet of planes and a fleet of pilots that you want to make sure that every pilot is working at the same standard, so that's where procedures and policies and training all come into to play, and we when we get into other realms of business and, and 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 other areas of our lives we don't often see that structure and that is why when we get in an airplane no matter what airplane we get into we know that the pilot is working along some sort of set procedure and i think with aero modeling creating those procedures is very very important so what we're going to do is this we're going to go through different phases of a typical flight or a typical day out at the field right so the first thing we're going to start talking about is when you get to the field and you assemble your model, what are you looking for? Pre-flight checks, I'm calling it. Yep, okay. I guess, yeah, personally, it's more, um, I suppose, when I'm with other people or doing checks for you know heavy models and all that sort of stuff, it's ensuring people sort of do the same thing each time and don't get distracted. So even myself, and you're well aware of it, you turn up with a new aeroplane or any aeroplane and while you're putting it together, there's usually three or four people that come and try and talk to you and you can get a little bit lost in your conversation and who hasn't forgot to plug something in or tighten up a screw or something like that. So to me, the more complex the models become, the more almost disciplined you need to be to be able to ensure that you do the same things each time and you make sure you've tightened up every last screw and plugged in every lead so that you don't get that nasty surprise when you taxi out and take off. Yeah, that is true. What about um, um, mindset before you fly? You know, like you talked about, we get to the field and there's always other people there. I call them the peanut gallery, Michael. Um, you know, before you, you know, it's okay to have a chit-chat with other people, but before you actually commit to flight, what are you trying to do? I, I call it putting my brain into gear for the aircraft that I'm going to fly for that flight. And it doesn't matter whether it's a trainer, it's a warbird, it's a jet, it's a helicopter. It's having an appreciation that every one of them is going to fly basically the same because they all go up, down, left and right but they all require a different thought process depending on how you want to fly it. So it's, yeah, for me, putting my mind in a mindset that if I'm going to fly a jet, okay, I'm going to go out and use my style of flying a jet as opposed to going out and just flying a trainer. Um, 
personally, I see pretty regularly people who sort of fly all different types of aeroplanes tend to try and fly them all the same. And as we all know, they all fly similar, but they're all got their own individual characteristics. And, you know, if you try and fly your jet like a trainer, you're probably going to come to grief at, in, at some time. So, yeah, it's a matter of appreciating each model and, and flying it accordingly. Well, Michael, I can attest to that because when I crashed my jet, I say that that crash happened 24 hours prior to the actual crash. Because Most likely. I rarely fly my jet. I really no, I'd, I'd hardly flown it. And I knew that I had to, like you were saying, appreciate the characteristics of that, 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 that plane. And I was saying to myself 24 hours prior, stop and think and just get some, uh, some headspace and think about what you're going to do and fly that jet. Because you fly aerobatic planes a lot, which are very forgiving and responsive and can fly extremely slow and, and all that kind of stuff. It's very different to what you're going to do. And I was rushing around like a headless truck. Everyone's going to say, oh, it's just excuses. But I seriously believe that it contributed to the crash that I had. So my, I'd never found that time to stop and think because I was too busy doing so many things you know, trying to get camera gear ready and finishing up work and pack my bags and pack the car and all that kind of stuff. And, and that the whole week was like that for me. That I was really busy. And so when I actually went to fly, I didn't think. I did not think, which is my fault, but I didn't think. You wouldn't have slowed down. And, and that's one of the hardest things is taking those, you know, in that type of situation because, you know, that's a fairly large event with a lot of people and, yeah, I don't care who you are, the more people you fly in front of, particularly a lot of our peers, you can't help but to get the heart rate up a little bit. So that's the time where you need to take that extra half a step back and just collect yourself to ensure that, you know, you're in the right headspace to do what you're going to do. And I wasn't. And and plus I had the peanut gallery, as I call them. I had a whole bunch of young young guys that were hanging around me and you know, I'm not blaming them. I don't think it's their fault because it was my responsibility to, to, to act in, in the appropriate manner. But um, in hindsight, yep, I needed to – it's something that I do actually. When I fly my my um, petrol-powered planes, my gases, uh, and when I my starting procedure, and I, I want to talk a bit about that, and I'll just share my experience to see what, what, what you do, is that I'm very wary of prop strikes, right, that I don't want to touch the prop and I don't want to – you know, I like playing guitar. I don't want to da damage my fingers. So I try to have the same routine and I find that, you know, uh, even where I place my transmitter on the ground is exactly the same spot and I get into this routine and quieten everything down in my mind and go through that routine to just make sure that I'm doing things by the book. What do you do when it comes to, to, to starting up your models? Exactly the same. It's, you know, to me, that's discipline. You know, if I, if I do it the same or try and attempt to do it the same every time, if suddenly I do something out of order, it should make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit and go, hang on, something's not right. You know, am I not, you know, thinking correctly? And am I in the right frame of mind to go out and fly this expensive jet or this trainer? I mean, it's, you know, they're the safeguards that I think, you know, you don't necessarily have to fly better than the next person, but you mightn't crash or damage aeroplanes as often if you have good discipline and, and you set yourself up well that you see errors prior to them becoming a mistake. 
And and I, I I do exactly the same. It's you know it's it's habit, it's ritual. You know you you do everything the same and sit in the same spot. And I, I still even you know I can fly okay. Um, yeah, I'm not a world world beater, but I can hold my own. I I believe in a lot of people. I still before I take off every time I take my thumbs off the stick once the airplane's lined up on the runway. I take a deep breath, I try to clear my head and I think about what I now want to achieve. Whereas you see too many people hit the runway at a million mile an hour, taxi out, throttle up and they're gone. And, you know, you then see that they're definitely behind the model before it takes off and they never catch up till it lands again. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose in, in sort of those fun fly event kind of things where there's a lot of activity on the flight line, people can really... You know, like I've been to the Shepherd and Mammoth event, you know, a number of times now, and I've seen a lot of crashes in the takeoff, landing, taxing kind of phase. You know, yep. Um, people hitting pylons and and fences and things like that, just out of just mistakes that 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 could have been prevented through a, a moment of stillness in a kind of way. Now, one of the things that I also do, and I, I'm throwing a few tips here and there, but I a bit like you, I, I I get to my standing position, and generally it's funny. I'm a bit I'm a bit weird. Maybe sometimes in a lot of flying areas, I always fly behind a safety fence. Um, I, there's yep. I don't know why I just like standing behind a fence. I don't have an issue standing behind a fence. I if there's a, a slab of concrete or even a part slab of concrete, I stand on the concrete. Like I try to find a flat area. I don't know why I do it, and I. I I plant myself. I plant my flying position. I spread my legs out a bit. My shoulders are parallel to the runway, and that's now I'm in yep. my flying position. I'm a bit like you. I know that I pause before I take off, and I go, okay, I'm going to go. Because sometimes also, um, and I'll ask you this question, about when you are flying with other people, so now we're talking about that next phase. We've started the engine, so we've done pre-flight checks. We've, we've started the engine, and now we're taxiing yep. out to the runway, right? Um, our plane's lined up. What are you considering? Because we know, and say there's other planes in the air, what are you looking at? Um, this is where, you know, I, I believe a lot of people at times can feel like they have to rush to get out of the way of everyone. But I haven't been at a model club yet that doesn't have a rule that states aircraft taking off and landing have priority over everyone else. So... If there's a lot of people out there flying and you say, I'm entering the runway for takeoff, as long as you're not going to sit out there for 10 minutes, you know, you've got all the time in the world you need unless someone goes dead stick, basically. So, you know, it's it's getting people to have the confidence to go, well, I actually need 20 seconds when I get out there just to do everything right. And I'm not going to, you know, rush myself because someone else has said, well, I need to land right now. So... You know, it's managing situations like that that can, you know, once again lead to errors. And, you know, particularly with instructing when you people have start flying their first tailwheel. So, you know, if you're taxiing out with full up elevator and you race onto the runway and you're still holding full up elevator, you know, I'd lost count of the amount of people that then apply full throttle. The airplane races off the ground well before they expected it. They don't realise they're still holding full up elevator. And it does the funky talk roll and it's in the deck and they're like, oh, must have been a radio problem. 
And it's just because you don't take those couple of seconds because you think you need to get out of everyone's way because they're more important. Yeah, that's true. And I think also being mindful of what's up in the air. And even even if there's other people in the air, such as, you know, people that may be less experienced, um, that kind of thing of keeping your distance. Right? So let's so let's just move on now to the next phase, right? A normal takeoff. So, yeah, I mean, one advantage of flying full-size aeroplanes and as you go up through more disciplines of different flying, you appreciate different things. And, you know, you've already hit on one of the biggest problems I see with people who don't consistently land in a good direction is they don't put their shoulders parallel to where they want to land. You know, you look at every pattern pilot and all that sort of stuff. There's a reason they stand in a certain spot with their shoulders at a certain angle because you can fly parallel to your shoulders all day without knowing where the ground is. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of people, unfortunately, follow the aeroplane when they fly with their shoulders and their body, and then when they come into land, they don't line their shoulders up parallel to the runway and, you know, don't understand why they land at an angle across it. And the same thing applies when you're taking off, you know. Keeping it down the runway centre line is not that hard when your shoulders are parallel. Mm. I, I, the people that walk around, and uh, I've known people that as the the plane's coming to land, they start walking. Yep. Walking and, and flying at the same time. And guess what? They muck their landings up all the time. Why? Because they're walking. I remember being at Shepparton years ago when we were flying 36 meg and the person beside me kept whacking me in the ear with their antenna on their radio because every time their plane would fly past, they'd turn it and smack me in the ear. <laughs> yeah. And you're sort of like, hmm. But, yeah, yeah, and, you know, like I say, every, everything I do is about building consistency. So, you know, I, in some respects, I like talking more about common errors than, you know, because that leads to people then correcting stuff to do it right. The other, other biggest area you notice, you do a beautiful takeoff, you're climbing out. You know, a lot of people, you know, in some respects, rip straight into a turn in the circuit direction and off they go. But if you really want to build consistency, you know, I teach people climb out on runway heading, get to a nice safe height, lower the nose, reduce the throttle, then start your turn. Because, yeah, the amount of times you go into a turn flat out, it gets a little bit out of control. Unfortunately, when we do get out of control on model airplanes, the throttle's usually the last stick you forget to pull back. And airplanes just go into the ground a lot faster at full throttle than they do at idle. Yeah. Uh, just, on, just on the takeoff phase with um, – it's something that I uh, – yeah, the throttle position on takeoff. Because I know this – got some friends of mine that will take off and they they don't apply a lot of power. It's almost like I do not know why, but my theory, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is your aim is to get the plane in the air, right? You're better off having more throttle than less throttle. So I pretty much yep. pin my throttle to, for a takeoff to be on the safe side to get it flying. Well, I'll ease it up depending on the model and the ground that yep. I'm taking off on. I'll ease it up. Um, but yeah. generally, I'm pretty much full throttle when I'm taking off to get it into the air. What What's your, you know, practice when you're taking off? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are some models, and it's it's all about what you're doing. You know, when you're when you're teaching someone to fly, 
you know, you want them to get them get away from the ground as safely and as quickly as possible because height is on is on your side. So, you know, a smooth advancement of throttle, and I, I usually say to them towards full throttle. You know, try to re- get them to resist the urge of just slamming the throttle wide open. So if they smoothly push it up, and as long as you're getting up to three quarter throttle minimum on most aeroplanes, it's not going to be an issue. You won't lift off too slow. You know, with control issues and then stall issues and spin issues. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the application of the power that's more critical than where it actually gets to. Yep. Yep. Okay. So now we're in the air, right? And, and, and like you said, we're, you, you've continued down the runway a bit. You've dropped the throttle a little bit and then you instigate the circuit, right? A, a turn in the circuit direction. Yep. I think it was you that said when I interviewed you that, um, you know, there's nothing like flying a good circuit. It just sets everything up. Let's talk about yeah. flying the circuit, right? And take us through all the different phases of the circuit and what your recommendations are. Okay. Um, an advantage I have, and I believe this helps me push it on to people who don't do it, is flying full-size aeroplanes and appreciating wind and drift and how much that affects the way the model flies through the sky. In that, you know, with a crosswind, it doesn't fly a straight line across the ground. You have to point it into the wind to draw a straight line across the ground. So, you know, there's a lot of times we fly circuits where the wind's not straight up and down the runway. So, you know, teaching people to compensate for, you know, a headwind on crosswind or a tailwind on base and stuff like that to how that will affect the aeroplane. You know, I, I see consistently that once they start appreciating that effect on the model, their circuits get a lot more consistent in a in a real nice pattern. And it's, you know, I, I don't know about yourself, but how many people really study the windsock that closely that, you know, before they take off, go, okay, I've got a quarter in clostering from the into my face from the right. You know, so when I take off, the airplane's gonna drift to my right. So I've got to be a little bit of left wing down to keep it straight just to fly out the runway. And then when I'm flying on my downwind, I'll have to be a little bit of right wing down to keep a good straight line so the distance stays consistently away from me. Yeah, okay, good point. Okay, and then so with your turns and things like that, are you trying to do a nice, neat rectangle? Yes, yep. I take everything from the full size. You fly the four legs of the circuit and you, you've seen me fly jets and even with my experience and all that sort of stuff, I still do a gear pass. I fly up the runway, fly upwind, straight over the runway, and that's when I put my gear down. So, A, I can see I've dangled the three Dunlops, but B, it puts me into my discipline mode of, well, now I'm established in the circuit, so I put my brain into gear for my circuit then. You know, I consistently see, and I used to joke and laugh with a lot of people, you know, unfortunately, the average aero modeler, and we've all seen it, and I'll put my hand up and say, oh, I've done it, is... A lot of people, when they call landing, they make a beeline from wherever they called landing to the shortest trip to the end of that runway, and that's their whole structured circuit, and then wonder why the landing's not that nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to landings because we're going to spend a bit of time on landings. Uh, one of the things that I always look for, one thing that I always aim for uh, is um, a nice radius of turn in the circuit and yep. also minimal height deviation uh is that something that you try to train students on definitely and it's you know 
it's it's all about aerodynamics and once again full size gives you a great grounding and i spend a little bit of time explaining it to new students and and anyone who wants to listen i have given talks in our model club drawing the four forces of lift and showing the way it acts so people get a bit of an understanding that the more angle of bank we put on the model the more height it's going to lose so the more elevators required to hold that height so you know, if I do a 30 degree angle of bank, for instance, or a nice gentle turn, it's not much elevator. If I crank it right over, I'm holding the height by just almost flying full up elevator. So, you know, nice, nice gentle turns is, is the key to good consistent flying. And, you know, particularly when we're doing the turn that's the last 90 degree turn to come back towards us to fly up the runway. You know, as we all know, flying towards us, left is right and right is left. And I say to people, if you're only doing a shallow angle of bank turn that's nice and consistent and you go the wrong way, it only steepens up slightly. Whereas if you're really steep to start with and suddenly you put in the wrong aileron, you're instantly upside down. The first thing people do when they're upside down is panic and pull back because pull back fixes everything. And you're in the deck and, you know, it's probably the most, other than spinning the model in on landing, that's probably the most consistent crash that we get in that phase, which is, you know, the wrong input, you're upside down, you pull back. Well, that's an interesting point um, for anyone that sort of might be a newcomer is that maybe when it comes to your turns, don't don't bank and yank too hard kind of thing. No, just... Keep them nice. The only the only caveat is that there are some fields that are pretty tight. Um, you know, down yep. here in Victoria, we've got the, the Doncaster Aero Modelers Club, and it's it's basically a football field um, size kind of field. And so I find it very hard to fly a nice rectangular circuit because it's very very rushed. It's like oh turn turn. So it becomes yeah a kind of oval. I think fortunately most most flying fields allow us to fly a rectangular circuit of sorts. Yeah, and that, that's what I was going to say. Well, that, that's just going to require a constant radius turn at each end. And, and that, that's what you'll find. You know, if you, if you take off and the wind's howling into your face, so you're flying left, left to right, for instance, with the how, wind straight into your face, when you get airborne and turn left the first time, for instance, to go into the circuit, you'll be able to roll the wings level because you're pushing into a nice headwind to get the aircraft out to where you need it. And then if you fly a parallel line on downwind, you're going to have a tailwind at the other end. So when you do your turn at the other end, there won't be a level segment, or otherwise you'll go past yourself. Mm, that's so, a good point. you know, you, you have to adapt to the conditions. And, you know, it can be blowing five knots on the ground and 20, 20 knots at, you know, 300 feet. And you don't realise that. And suddenly you go, geez, every time I turned a line up there, with the runway, the aeroplane blows way past the, it almost goes behind me. And it's like, yeah, that's because you put a level segment in on the base leg with a huge tailwind. Yeah. And I think, well, there's so many different types of models. Flying a warbird is different to flying a jet, which is different to flying a glider and a trainer plane is different all again. And so when it comes to, to flying those circuits and, and flying different planes, would you you think that it, the the advice that you give would be to err on the side of caution in 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 your you know your first flight of the day or the first few flights of your day of getting in the air and just flying some gentle circuits rather than definitely definitely I mean and we all yeah and we all you know and you 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 gave a great point before that it's the the classic 
of, you know, some days when we turn up at the field, you know, we if we're really honest with ourselves, we probably shouldn't fly, you know, because we aren't in that right frame of mind. And then we go out and have a flight and something goes wrong and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, it's it's one of the hardest things I see, particularly as people are getting older and, you know, I've taught some guys to learn to fly in their 90s, you know, and there's certain days at the field where I've just said to them, look, you know, today's not, not a good day for you to fly because, you know, you're not, you know, going to fly it very well and, and that. And it's hard for men who are proud people to admit that, oh, today's probably a day with the wind and the weather that I should just leave a model in the car and chat to everyone. Do you know what? And that's what I should have done at the Wang Jets event this year. I should not have taken my plane out of the trailer. I should have just left it there. I had a great time, absolutely awesome time. A, a, a little bit of a barrier in the way, which was the crash of the plane. Uh, but but I, I was not in the right frame of mind. And, and sometimes I have been to the field where I might do one flight and go, no, nah, I'm not feeling it, not today. Because I can vouch for this, Michael. I got the invoice today from JetCat for the repair of my turbine. And that crash yep. is still giving. It's still giving yeah. me pain and suffering the fi- the financial cost of crashing a jet it's not insignificant when you think about it it, it is it just starts to rack up and and my turbine wasn't totaled you know the starter motor yep. was broken the ecu was cracked and a few bits went missing that we couldn't find and whatever you know a few ancillary items but it all starts to add up even shipping costs and to get it back to germany and stuff like that but but it's it's more critical, I think, when we're flying these these more expensive models to really just keep your wits about you in a kind of way and make sure you're in the right headspace. And just a point on, uh, and, and I, this is not having a go at elderly people or anything because I can't wait to be in, in in that position where I'm retired and can go to the field and enjoy enjoy that phase of my life. But for anyone yep. out there that might be having health issues where, you know, especially things such as um, hearing and uh, eyesight, that I've been at the flying field with people that say to me, oh, yeah, I'm having trouble seeing the models nowadays. And to yeah. me, that then becomes a safety issue that you need to be mindful of. And I know, like you said, we're all very proud men because let's be honest, it's 99.9% males at the field uh, yep. that we don't like being told that we're not, you know, we're not you know, suitable and I think that we have to be responsible in that regard, that if our health means that we can't be responsible, just sit and have a chat because, you know what, that's good fun as well. I enjoy having a chat at the flying field. That's it. And, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with people, you know, because I'm passionate. I, I love see, seeing people get better. And if they want a few little tips and want to apply them, I believe, you know, you, you know, the best golf coach or tennis coach in the world was never the world's best player. So you don't have to be the best pilot to be a good teacher, you know, and, and just getting even people to appreciate different coloured planes in different coloured skies make it really challenging. And, you you know, you're either overcast day or your day that's not bright blue sunshine, it's just got a little light cloud cover. Some aeroplanes just look grey and black, whether they're the right way up or the wrong way up or wherever their orientation is in the sky. So. I say to people, it's the hardest plane to fly when it's hiding in its shadow every leg of the circuit. Now, a little tip on that. What What is your recommendations if you lose orientation? Um, it's, it's the hardest thing to do is actually just relax. Don't go searching for the sticks. 
But it depends, you know, it's proportional to the heart rate because if you're, you know, 50 feet off the ground and it's coming towards you or near trees or something and, you know, it's hard for the heart rate not to hit 300 and you start pushing those sticks hoping it's going to work. It's, yeah, being able to slow down, it's, it's something that, you know, myself with years of flying some pretty creative aeroplanes for a lot of different people, it's one thing I've learned to be able to take half a breath before you start pushing sticks to, you know, make the thing worse. But, but it's hard to teach people that because not everyone can grasp that because it's, you know, you know, taking off with an aeroplane with, you know, I was flying one around one day and, and the elevator failed. So, you know, most aeroplanes, you open the throttle, it climbs, you close the throttle, it, it descends. So I just got used to flying around, you know, with, with no elevator and just climbing and descending it until I worked out I could get a nice descent rate, lined it up with the runway and didn't even break the propeller when I landed. You know, I've, I've flown a couple of turbines and I did it to myself with my Hawk. I had, I got there and um, I changed the C of G in it. I thought I had it right. And, you know, I'll put my hand up and admit, you know, I nearly killed the Hawk that I had because I took off. It felt okay. I went into a loop. I got three quarters of the way around the loop and I was already at full up elevator. It was coming down vertically and it leveled out just and I held full up elevator for the rest of the flight until I touched down. And if I let the elevator up, it was gone. I let it off, it was gone. And, you know, I just managed throttle, you know, until I got it back on the ground. It didn't do any damage, but, you know, it was, you know, it was good luck or good management, but, yeah, it's you know, I don't know. It's 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 hard to teach people not to react when things go wrong because it's the first thing we want to do. We start mixing those sticks. Yeah, it's like when you do an advanced driving course and they teach you all about braking and say just don't lock the brakes up. All right, so we're going to do some exercises, right? And everybody might get the gist of the theory, and then you get out on the road in the first incident, you just jump for that brake pedal. And and it was interesting. I had a chat oh, I with. You know, there was the great man Cliff McIver. Cliff McIver is a well-known name in the Victorian hobby scene, been around for many, many years, and he rang me up to give me some tips about um, my crash with my jet, right? If you haven't seen my crash video, go onto the Flat Out RC YouTube channel and have a look. And he said, what you need to do next time your plane gets to a spin like that is stop and let go of all the sticks, and the plane will probably yeah. stop spinning. And, I, and now I said to him, I'm really thankful we had this chat because I had a bit, of, a bit of a chat with him about it. One of the concerns I had was that um, I said, Cliff, in the heat of the moment, I clammed up and because I thought it was a radio lockout because it happened that yep. quickly. It snapped into a spiral dive and I'm sitting there twiddling sticks, right? We'll and probably, probably get people saying, were you flying spectrum? <laughs> of course. <laughs> that's, that's usually what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, that's what they always say. Going. Load yep. of rubbish because, yes, I was flying yep. Spectrum and I still had full control of the plane. It was just that exactly. it snapped into a stall or something like that. And then and I said to him, in the heat of the moment, the last thing on my mind was to let go of the sticks. But I said to him, now that you've told me that, Cliff, for the rest of my life, when I get into a spin that I feel like I can't control, I'm going to let go of the sticks. And I thanked him for that because now I've got him. I said, you're going to be ringing in my ears um, when, when if that eventuates ever again. I still said to him, I didn't have enough height and I still would have slammed it into the deck, even if I let go of the sticks, it just would have No, you, you wouldn't know. have. Well, I didn't have and height. It, this is well, but this is it. This is the appreciation of the difference between a spin and a spiral dive. 
you can only spin a model if it's stalled and everything else is a spiral die. So, you know, looking at yours, it actually stalled and spun. And the only reason it stayed in the spin is because the, the aeroplane remained stalled. So as soon as you let go of the sticks, it unstalls the wing. It may keep rotating, but it'll, it'll start flying again because it can accelerate. Well, my problem was, I'm making excuses now. My problem no. was that the, the stall was induced by elevator input. Yep. So I yep. would have had to put, it was going nose down, so I would have had to pull on the elevator pretty quick smart to get it to level out, which wouldn't that have, you know, created the problem once again? Um, Potentially not, maybe. If, if, yeah, if you, and this is where it all becomes proportional, it's going to be then proportional to the rate in which you rip on the elevator because if you just let the nose drop and then go full up elevator again, you're straight back into the storm. Yes. But, you know, and this is the downside of jet aeroplanes to prop aeroplanes. You open the throttle on a prop plane, it instantly blows air over the tail. So we get elevator effectiveness. Whereas you open the throttle on a jet, A, you wait for it to spool up, which is pretty quick these days, but the thing has to physically accelerate forward to accelerate the air over the tail to get the tail to start working again. There you go. So that's another great tip. See, isn't it good? <laughs> so, I've taken one for the team and we can now talk about my crash. And I'll talk about my crash a bit, but, you know, and honestly, I don't mind talking about it. Some people are really like, oh, I'm going to look like a bad pilot because I crashed a plane. No, I'm not the world's greatest pilot. And I, I don't prove that, but I'm willing to talk about it so that we can all learn because I've learned so much. Like I'm going to fly my jet because I've got another one coming in a totally different manner to the, the mindset that I had when I flew that plane. I've learned from that mistake. So now let's, let's you know, share that knowledge. Yeah, and that's, that's what I was yeah, going to say to you, you know, as bad as the crash was, you know, the definition of learning is behaviour modified by experience. So that experience has taught you that next time in that environment or any environment, A, you may be in a different mindset, and B, you know, you you will approach that flight from a different angle than you normally would have, you know, so that, you know, we learn from our mistakes. So the next time you, you will do it again, you know, there's no doubt you will probably stall, spin an aeroplane at some stage, yeah, but, you know, you might be a better outcome next time. Well, because I fly aerobatic planes, I'm pretty yep. good at recovering from spins because they it's easier to, like you said, with a prop You've plane. You've got instant airplane. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to do it. And the planes that I fly are designed to fly really slow. Their stall speed's so slow and whatever. So I get into spins and I do flat spins and things like that. And how do I get out of a flat spin? I let go of the sticks and the plane stops rotating kind of thing and I fly out from it. In the worst case scenario, yep. I let go. I just didn't do that. Again, headspace is important. So. Well, well, here's a, a good good practice for you. And, and everybody hates doing it with the more expensive the aeroplanes go. But have you ever done a stall test on when you flew the Viper? Do you ever take it up high? No. And go and stall it and see, A, see its characteristics and B, get an appreciation of what it would take to get out of it? Well, that's, I had that, literally had that chat with a friend of mine today about yep. understanding the stall characteristics of your model and that in theory what we should all do. And you know what? I used to do that with prop planes. When I was learning, I'd take the boomerang trainer up and stall it. It was, it was almost like a test in the, in the maiden flight. How does this thing stall? And you know what? To be 100% honest, I've forgotten all about that until you just mentioned it. That, and I suppose we get scared of stalling the jet 
right? That's like for me that we're all. Expensive hole in the ground. It's drummed into (laughs) us. Don't slow it down too much, right? Yep. And, 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 like when I crashed my jet, again, I'm talking about myself and my jet. So all those people go, oh, you're going to talk about your jet again? Yes, I'm talking about my jet so you can learn from me. It was heavy. It had a lot of fuel on board, right? So the wing loading changed. So the maneuvers that I did should not have even been attempted at that point in time in the flight because we carry so much fuel on those jets. It, like the, the weight difference from takeoff to landing is so dramatic that the plane, yep. like I noticed in my aerobatic planes, I've got quite a big tank in my 30cc aerobatic plane. And at the start, it actually is a nice plane to fly five minutes in because it just drops a bit of weight and becomes a bit more nimble. And see, if I just stop and think, because when I fly those planes, I go, I'll save that maneuver when the fuel load's down a bit more, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I just, I should have just done three or four circuits and that would have probably would have been better off. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So, and yeah, and it's, you know, and it's critical. I mean, it's, you know, we've talked about a structured circuit, so we get used to flying a regular pattern. But then, you know, and it doesn't matter what you fly, what you do, you know, when you introduce people to aerobatics, for instance, I, you know, I use the pattern mentality, mentality. you know, all your manoeuvres are split directly in front of you where you're standing. So if you're doing a loop, it's half on the right, half on the left. You know, you see, see most people do a manoeuvre down one end or up the other end. And the last thing you need for orientation is an aeroplane a long way away from you. So, you know, and we, unfortunately, we don't get to do it too much like those jet meets. You feel, you know, once again, it's like the takeoff. You know, you're doing a loop right in front of everyone. You're sort of right in the middle of a pattern. So it's all like, oh, we'll do one out the end and that doesn't really matter. But you've increased the chance of losing orientation or if something does go wrong, you know, you don't get to see your model as clearly as you would if it was directly out in front of you. Well, you know, it's interesting that I didn't realise until I went to the last IMAC event that the, when they judge the manoeuvres, they're actually not judging whether the manoeuvre centred. They do in pattern, but not in IMAC. And I'm like, what? Because I would practice IMAC sequences just to, as a point of practice to improve my flying. And yep. I my aim always was to, you know, if you're doing a roll, that, that that inverted phase of the roll is dead in front of me. So always trying to get my time, my manoeuvres, so they're directly in, you know, that midpoint of the manoeuvres directly in front of me. And so it's something that I've sort of worked worked towards. And then I find out at IMAC events, oh, no, no, you can be a bit off-centre and do your loop and whatever. I go, really? I said, what's the point of that? <laughs> like, don't you, don't you want to Well, yeah, like- that's it. They don't, put, they don't put the three posts in the ground and have the imaginary box, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, but do you know what? Even from a judging perspective, if that, that manoeuvre is centred, you probably give them a better score anyway because it looks better. It's like it's all, you know you know what looks good? Precision and symmetrical flight. It looks great. Uh, yeah, you can only do that directly in front of you. You can't do that looking at it off and on tangent without, without going off the parallel line that you should be flying on. And then they can see that real bad because you're not flying the parallel line you should fly. Do you know who flies the best circuit that I've ever seen? It's, uh, who's that? I'll tell you who, Jace Ducia, probably the world's best freestyle aerobatic pilot going around. Like the guy's skill yep. level is absolutely and utterly phenomenal. And his precision is just, I don't know where he gets it from. It's a lot of practice. Yep. If you see and him discipline. fly, yes, and if you see him fly a circuit, he makes it look so good. How can we all fly the same maneuver, but one the one person can make it look really good? And I've worked out what it is. It's purposeful. It's precise. There's no deviation. 
everything is just so neat and 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 exudes confidence. You know when you see someone yep. flying, you go, they're totally in charge of that plane. It's just yeah, that, it's that, that effortless. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, that's something that I'd love. I wish if someone came up to me and said, gee, that just looks confident and effortless, it would be like, oh, I've achieved my goals. That's it. Well, I'll, I'll ask you this question. Yeah. You ask me lots of questions. I'll ask you, you being a, a you know, reasonable flyer. Oh, um, don't know about that. We'll claim it, though. <laughs> no, you can hold your own amongst, amongst the big boys. Um, when you're flying your model, do you reference its position in the sky to the point in which you're standing and try and, when you are flying a circuit, try and hit the same height at the same speed in the same position if you're flying a circuit reference to where you're standing or reference to your peripheral vision with, you know, trees or runway markings or something on the ground? I think, okay, I've, I've written articles about this for magazines, in Airborne magazine, when I used to write some articles um, for Airborne about reference points. And I'd say that I do, I do it subconsciously often in that when I fly yep. a circuit, I have a very, very um, strong picture in my mind of how my flights should look. They must be neat. I'm not looking to wow the crowd. I just want it to be neat. And neat also means safe as far as I'm concerned. So in control. Yeah, yep. So when I, um, as I said, my, my standing point is is I like to stand pretty central in the runway sort of space, depending on where the flight boxes are. If I've got a choice, I'll pick the one yep. that's sort of in the center. I, I am very critical of my turn points left and right. So that box that I fly. Uh, sometimes yep. I, the plane might get away from me um, and might be too far away and I get uncomfortable and then I bring it back in and come back to my box and, and do that kind of stuff. I, de- I, I have done flights where I've been tried to be very mindful of picking landmarks and trying to line up and I'm not successful at doing that. I'll be honest to say that. Yep. But I do um, try to fly a, a very consistent box. That's just something yep. that I will Sorry. organically do naturally. But picking markers, I haven't been able to line things up perfectly and saying, okay, there's that tree when it gets to sort of here kind of thing. Okay, because what I'm, what I'm alluding to, and this is probably one of the biggest concerns I see on a regular basis from people, when you go to a new field for the first time, your first landing, you know, if you took off, flew around, could you put your first landing on the middle of the runway dead in front of you? Uh, I mean, it's a, not at a Chuka because it, not at a Chuka because the runway is so narrow and my, my plane was so big, <laughs> there was little room for come error on, and there was on. wind, right? Come on. But, come on, but how wide do you need? Your airplane's only got a meter. Well, well it, when I went to a Chuka, <laughs> I was flying a plane that I had, had it was 100cc and I hadn't flown a lot. And, uh, and I, I think that someone's got a video of me landing, I call it on the footpath, just on the edge. Um, yep. but, but I'm very, very good. Um, and again, it's an expectation that I have of, yep. and we're going to talk about landing now, but very shortly, but yep. I am very good at pinpointing where I want the wheels to touch down. Like, for example, yep. in my mind, well, actually, let's hold that thought. I don't want to jump the gun because we're going to talk about landing and we're <laughs> okay. going to touch on this yep. point, right? So yep. Yep. it's very good. The number one manoeuvre, I say, in model flying is the landing. It's the, it's the one that most people see. 
Like we're not sitting there. I don't know about you, but I don't sit there and watch people's flights from start to finish. I'm talking to people. Yeah. I'm doing my thing. You catch a glimpse of something. You hear some noise and whatever. But the landing is the one that most eyes are on the landing because you're either waiting for that person to land so you can take off. So you're watching their landing and all that kind of stuff. It is the most important maneuver, and it's the one that that can wow the crowd. And nothing beats a good landing. I yeah. don't care what anybody yeah, says. Yeah, whether it's a good like, landing or a good crash landing. A, ho- a plane hovering <laughs> is a plane hovering, but a plane that does a grazer yep. of a landing, you go, that is awesome, right? So, okay, I want you to take us through your landing procedure. Um, in some respects, I'm probably a little bit unique in in how I, I initially teach and I, I try and, you know, practice what I preach, how I tell people to do something is exactly how I do it 99.9% of the time unless something's gone wrong. I personally fly all my circuits irrespective of the aeroplane that once you're on downwind, should that engine stop, I can make the field. And I've seen it particularly with jets because they're bigger, faster and heavier. People fly far too far away they set up on final far too far out, and if suddenly it goes quiet, you're stuck out in the bush somewhere. And a lot of lot of people don't like flying that close, but you know you can fly twenty kilo plus jets, you know, just over you know, say Wangaratta jets, you're probably you know fifty meters at the most past the fence on the other side of the runway, at the most. And you just do a constant turn around onto that runway and you can land every time. So, you know, your position and setup to me is more critical than, you know, the application of what you're going to do because, you know, you need to be able to, you know, when we fly full-size aeroplanes, you know, basically in the circuit, you can make it to the field pretty much anywhere from downwind. And, you know, I think that's what a lot of people don't do. But, you know, I you know, like the takeoff. I like breaking it down into very simple actions, you know, like like I said, take off, maintain runway heading, get to a safe height, level off, throttle back, start your turn. Same as when, you know, for instance, if you're not doing a descending turn, so we'll we'll talk about the perfect circuit. So when we turn on the final, that's when we're going to start adjusting throttle elevator and everything to come in. So, you know, I say to people, wings level, set the elevator, reduce the throttle to idle. And I, you know, Unless it's a big technical aeroplane, I land pretty much all my jets, everything at idle, and I leave them at idle and set my set my approach up so that I can stay that bit closer, and they're at idle all the way in. Yeah, okay. So just go over that again. Give us a step-by-step guide, right? <laughs> You're downwind. Yep. Start at downwind, okay. so right? And I, just yeah. step-by-step walk us through that circuit down to the ground. Okay, so we're on downwind. We're going to turn on the base. Okay, so this... This is flying a general aeroplane. It doesn't really matter what you're flying. This is my theory behind a good approach and landing. So we're going to turn. We're doing a left-hand circuit. So we turn left on the base. We're holding our height. We're at a good position. You know, we would have started the turn in about a 45-degree angle from where we're standing. Um, As we turn on to final, we're going to go wings level, reduce the throttle, and then set the elevator because... In a model aeroplane, the angle we set the elevator at will set the body angle of the model, which will set our speed, and all the throttle does is either increase or decrease our rate of descent, if that makes sense. Okay. You understand so what I'm coming from? Repeat that so that everybody yep, can hear so, it again. Just repeat that. So 
as we go wings level and it starts to slow down, you know, it'll drop the nose. So we need to hold the nose up a little bit. So you put elevator in and, you know, for instance, these are the three examples I use. Say we're flying a trainer. So you've got the boomerang trainer. Basically at idle, if you slow it down, holding elevator at idle till the body sits parallel to the ground, it'll start a beautiful descent and just hold a constant speed all the way to the ground. Hmm. If you're flying um, a, a warbird, a scale aeroplane, I say to people, the nose has to be set so you can just see over the top of the wing so that it's got a nice slightly nose down attitude that's actually pushing itself down towards the runway. You know, my, my theory on flying jets is if I'm flying a jet, I set the nose ever so slightly above the horizon so that it, it you know, because there's more residual thrust from a turbine than any other propeller plane, it'll actually push the jet along safely and, you know, the speed will stay constant. And, you know, an example I give is, you know, you fly along nice and slow at idle and then you just let the elevator off, the nose drops. The first thing that happens is a plane picks up speed. So every time I change the body angle or the attitude with the amount of elevator, without touching the throttle, I can make the plane go slower or faster. So if I set my elevator and hold it at a constant point, my speed has to stay the same. Yeah, okay. That's, that's... <laughs> and, it's, you, you can, and I say, I do it with people. We go out there with a scanner or a boomerang. And it's like, okay, let's, you know, for people like yourself who've got jets and or anything else, big warbirds, it's like, let's take a boomerang out there. And now let's do a trainer approach. And you get them just to go to idle as the aeroplane slows down, get the, enough elevator till the body sits parallel to the ground. Once it hits a magic speed, it's not stalled, it'll start descending. Hmm. You know, you get them to do a couple of those and they get used to doing that. Then you go, okay, same aeroplane, let's do a scale approach. So you get them to leave it slightly nose down so they can see over the top of the wing and it holds a constant speed, comes down. It's like, now let's do a jet approach. You can hold the nose slightly above the horizon and it'll mush its way down. You're still in full control because it's not full up elevator. It hasn't stalled. And, you know, realistically, the, the advantage I find from that as well, if I have to go round, all I have to do is push the throttle up because that little bit of elevator I'm holding will naturally just bring the aircraft into a climb and away it goes. I don't have to think about pushing throttle, pulling elevator and, you know, mm-hmm. I keep it as simple as I can. And that's that's how I teach people. And people, some people are like, oh, that doesn't work. And it's like, well, I actually, like with my jets, I set my speed when I'm turning from downwind on the base. That's when that's usually back at idle, full flaps out, gears out, I set the elevator and my thumb doesn't move. And I, with people, hold my transmitter up and show them. I said, look at my left thumb because I'm mode one. It won't move till I have to flare at touchdown. And if I find I'm descending too quick, I just open the throttle a little bit and that'll flatten the descent out. If I've made a boo-boo and too high, I can't descend any faster without making this thing go really fast. And if I arrive in my flare going too fast, it just keeps flying forever or I touch down too fast and it bounces and it's all over. So, yeah, constant speed is the key. And that's one thing I believe we don't do that well as model aeroplane pilots. Yet you look at us flying full-size aeroplanes, you know, you're flying them within, you know, 
we have a, we have a tolerance of plus 10, minus 5 when it's windy, but you try and fly to the knot on your approach. So, you know, whereas, you know, you look at the speeds, we land some of our model aeroplanes, and in particular the jets, it's, you know, from a scale point of view, it's scary what speeds they're actually doing. Yeah, that's true. What about um, the height that you start? Like, what I find is some people will start really, really high. Um, and yep. and I often, more often than not, they'll fudge the landing because they're just really, really high trying to do an approach at a, from a really high height. So they've got to descend a long way to get it onto the ground. What's your suggestions about around that? Well, I mean, it, it all comes back to good circuits because, you know, naturally the further away you are, the higher the model has to be to be with your eyes to visually look at the same spot. So if you've flown a much wider circuit, you're going to be a lot higher than if you flew it closer in. So you suddenly find yourself stuck high going, oh, I had to get all the way up there. And it's probably because the circuit was flown wider, which made it higher than if it was in closer and slightly lower. So it's, I guess the key thing I always try and work on is hitting the same spot in the sky at the same speed. And that's, that can only come with practice. I couldn't tell you the amount of hours and litres and litres of fuel I've spent with trainers just flying circuits. And just in my mind, finding that same spot at the same height at the same speed every time. And, you know, it's once you get your head around it, you never lose it. And it doesn't matter what airplane I fly. Like I can go from, you know, jets to trainers to warbirds to helicopters to gliders all in the one day. And, yeah, I might have flown some of them for 12 months and it's like you you only flew it yesterday because I apply exactly the same application every time I do it. Well, I noticed at the Wang Jets event this year how big a circuit some of the people were flying. And, yes, some of these planes yeah. eat up the sky, but they were kilometres out, like kilometres out. There was no way if they had an engine failure they'd get the planes back. And I'm not talking about one or two people. There were a lot of people that were flying high, and far and and okay there's plenty of space at wangaratta so you can sort of get away right, with exactly it. and that's it you use what you've got yeah i'm struggling to keep an eye on where these what these planes are doing like they become little specks in the sky and i think it, some of it's nervousness that i've seen this um aversion to wanting to turn the model because they freeze up in the moment because they're so nervous and it's yep. and I, you know, I saw one guy once um he built this scratch built aerobatic plane which was a bit of a clunker it was pretty heavy and he flew this the world's biggest circuit I'd ever seen, and he ended up losing on one of the legs and spiraled it into the ground. And he said, "Do you see that?" And I was didn't want to turn around and say, "Buddy, you just flew that plane to the ground. Why?" And I said to him, "Okay, you better turn." But uh, this is before the accident. I said, "You're pretty far out. You might want to bring it back a bit closer, kind of thing." But it was too late. He was so frozen up and nervous on this maiden flight, and he ended up binning the whole plane. It was like it was literally two paddocks across. It was that far away. But um, yeah, I just I just don't know. I, personally, I can't see the model when it's that far out, and I feel very yeah. uncomfortable. I'm I'm that, I'm that kind of glider pilot that says, "Okay, I'm a bit uncomfortable. My plane's pretty high now; it's getting pretty small, and I, I pull out of the thermal and get down." <laughs> so I'm not going to yeah. win a glider comp or anything because I'm I'm pulling out of the out of, out of the thermal. Yeah, and you know, it's it's yeah, and that's what I find. You know, most of us, yeah, and the, the unfortunate thing, I suppose, like yeah, you know, the yeah, if we want to touch a little bit on, on instructing as such, 
you know, it's it's good that like the MAAA instructor manual and all that's really good these days. And it's good that they're now putting, you know, a bit of emphasis on keeping us all current and, and renewing what we do, which is awesome. You know, but everyone's got such a unique technique, but also um, really once you go solo and maybe get your gold wings, how good you then become or what you practice and what you do is left to your own, you know, desire. And sometimes there's not enough to push people to, you know, maybe become as proficient as they need to be. Yeah, I, I, I take people out there, you know, with trainers and I, I love flying trainers because they're the ultimate, you know, rugged test machine. And you take someone up at really high, just put it to idle and give it to them and just get them to set the body angle parallel to the ground. And they can fly around for minutes and minutes, you know, and, you know, and you go, well, that's what happens if the engine fails. You watch most people who have an engine failure, they point the nose at the ground, they dive it towards where they took off from and then wonder why they lose it when they could have probably flown around and flown almost to a good structured circuit and get the airplane safely on the ground. Yeah. A point on touchdown, all right, because you, yep. you asked me a question about, you know, the landing kind of thing, and that's why I've sort of stalled it and we pulled you back to talk about the landing phase. I'm going to answer your question now because I'll give you my opinion on it, That, and I've mentioned this before, uh, that I always like to have my wheels down on the ground before the plane has reached my body wherever I'm standing. Right, okay, because yeah. I've got this this thing where when the plane is, you know, the, the, when the, you, you're coming in on approach and the plane sails past you at head height and you're still trying yeah. to land and now your brain's saying, I'm running out of runway. Gee, I've used up a lot of runway here. And then you force it onto the ground and that's where you make a mistake and you, you're better off. So what I say is that if, if my plane has not touched the ground before it reached to me in a reasonable zone too by the way yeah because you're going to be landing too far away yes it's literally (laughs) where you can sort of see the plane and it lands maybe 20 30 meters before you and it touched down then i'm in total control and 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 my mind is in a good good um sort of frame of mind that i'm making good decisions now not putting too much pressure on myself what's your recommendation around touch touch point touchdown point I mean, realistically, I I personally try and touch down directly in front of myself. You know, it, it, it's proportional, I should, you know, say, proportional to the strip because sometimes the pilot boxes are like ours in Mildura. It's closer to one end of the strip than it is the other. So, you know, to land my jets into the west touching down in front of me, I've only got about 50 metres of runway left of the 140 we've got. So, yeah, I have to bring it in lower up the eastern end, closer to the trees than I'd like, but I always keep sky between the bottom of the wheels and the top of the trees, so then you guarantee you're not going through all. But I must, I have to touch down much earlier. Whereas somewhere at Wangaratta, you know, I, I plan to touch down basically a good, my disciplined rule of thumb within the orange cones that represent the pilot box, Yeah. So an early touchdown would be the left-hand end of it and a late touchdown would be the right-hand end of it. And that's that's the discipline level I try and put on myself that there's my reference point, so I'm going to land within the width of the barricade they put out there. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's similar similar to what you're doing, you know. Most people, and this is what I find, the, 
you know, why some people are more consistent than others because you've already set yourself a parameter that you were aimed to achieve. Most people are like, oh, as long as I hit the cut stuff and I can use it again, that was great, which is completely entitled. And that, that's what we accept as being, yep, not a problem. But you know, if you want to step to the next level and realise why you maybe don't damage aeroplanes as often as other people do, or you fly that little bit more consistently, it's because we we pull our own personal tolerances in much tighter. I'm a big believer of that. Well, I've got this short attention span problem. So when I go flying, I can get bored pretty quickly of like like scale planes flying in circuits. I've got nothing against them and I'm going to own scale planes and all that kind of stuff, but I get bored really quickly. That's why I fly aerobatics, right? And that's why I fly gliders, which can be, Counterintuitive, you might think that it's boring, but I'm looking for lift and I'm, my mind it's is occupied all the time. Yeah. So, but I create a level of expectation. And, and if anybody sees me at the flying field and sees me shaking my head, it's because I just stuffed up a maneuver that I was trying to do. So, for example, I'll, I'll practice rolls, four point rolls, something like that. And I'm looking for a good, nice roll. And when I don't do it, I sit there and beat myself up in a kind of way. And you'll see me shake my head sometimes. Whilst I'm out, yep. and the, out on the flight line by myself, I'm shaking my head going, what was that? You know, because I'm trying to fly to that standard for my own sake because that's what I enjoyed. It challenges me to fly to that standard as well. And and I, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that, you know, there are a lot of people who turn up to the field and just go and have fun and they don't worry too much. But then, you know, if you want to progress with your flying, and for me, progressing means not being able to hover a plane and do 3D aerobatics. It is being a confident flyer that flies ahead of the plane that is consistent in the way that their, their models fly. And, and you know, you land correctly, you fly nice and neatly. You've got to have some level of expectation to work towards to, to drum it into yourself. And, and you know, and that's why IMAC, a lot of people fly IMAC to improve their flying or pattern or even yeah. scale comp. Because it's, now you're being judged on it. Yeah. It's discipline. And that's all it's doing is putting discipline into, we are disciplined because the rules require us to be disciplined. But in some respects, the tolerance on that is quite wide and it's still safe. Whereas all these other disciplines, you know, like the pattern guys, why do they stand with their feet so wide? You go, you know, I stir a few of them up, you know. It's their the drunk. guy who won't, won't come on here, Glenn Orchard, I used to stir him out. Oh, but, don't know, don't mention I, that I, name, Glenn Orchard. I, I, I show you people when I'm flying with them and the ones who wander around, I get them to put their legs as wide apart as they physically can. I go, now try and turn your shoulders. It's almost impossible. I go, so, yeah, that's why pattern pilots don't stand there with their feet together because you move your shoulders way too easy. So, you know, like you do, you stand there, you put your legs apart because it stabilizes your body. So it gives you a chance to fly straight away. I fly with a, a transmitter tray, right? Because yep. I was chasing um, a consistent feel of when I stand on the flight line to reduce my natural propensity to potentially overfly the plane, right? So, for example, I wanted to, st I found that I was moving the transmitter around with a neck strap. Right? Yep. If I had no strap, same thing. I'd, my hands would move. And my theory was that if this is stable, right, then all I'm doing is putting these inputs into the sticks, not with movement and variables of the of the transmitter moving around. And and so I put a tray on and now it's like I can't fly without a tray because yeah. I just become loosey-goosey because yep. I don't have what I call a stable platform to work with. That's why I call it my stable yep. table. Yep. And that's it. It's, you know, it's discipline. 
you know, I, I say to people, like I, like, like I said, you know, take off or landing, you know, wings level back to idle, set the elevator. I call them one percenters because I can change either one of those on any aeroplane and practice it and see how it affects. But if I suddenly change five things, I can't see the effect of any one of those five things I've had on the flight. And, you know, I do the same when I'm at work here teaching the young kids. It's a work on an analogy that I can go out and change a one percenter a hundred times, but I can't go out and do it a hundred percent right once. So, you know, let's let's break it down to tiny little chunks so that next time we're going to change this one chunk. Oh, that made a bit of a difference. Okay, lock that one in. Now we'll change this little chunk and this chunk. And eventually, suddenly you're 70, 80% better and you're like, wow, how did that happen? And that, that's what I try and apply to all this flying. It's, you know, me, me, my personal flying, I set all my timers for six minutes. My jets, everything, you know. I don't fly much more than six minutes. A, I get bored, a bit like you, your attention span. But realistically, from doing so much teaching, even for new pilots, about six minutes is what I've found where most people start or they, they stop flying the aeroplane and they start reacting to it. And that's, that's when they've lost it. Whereas if you bring them around, get them to land, park it on the middle of the runway, take their fingers off the sticks, take a deep breath, take off again, you can reset another six minutes and they get 12 minutes of flying as opposed to trying to stay out there for 10 minutes and have absolutely worn themselves out. Then they've got to do the hardest bit and most challenging bit, which is get it back on the ground safely so they can use it again. Yeah, that's true. And you see that consistently at you know model fields where I believe people fly slightly too long in some respects, and they're worn out, and you know they'll do an early landing in their flight, and it's awesome. And by the time they've flown for ten minutes of concentration, you know it's particularly if they're a person who flies at hundred percent of the time. You know, how often do you take your fingers off the sticks or just relieve the pressure on the sticks, where you just let the model fly and just watch it go past? It's that I find that's really hard for most people to do because they feel like they've got to be driving it the whole time. Yeah. Uh, it, it's yes, so many good points there. There's one one thing I want to I want to ask you about is the use of flaps for models that yep. have flaps. Give us a few tips. Um, understanding aerodynamics, whether it's drag flap or lift flap, to whether it's going to pitch the nose up or the nose down. Um, once again, personal preference because that's what we're talking about. I I am a person. I my my flying. You know, I'll go slightly digress a little bit. I don't use dual weights. I use a little bit of expo and I don't use any mixing. So I'm not a big fan of mixing elevator into my flaps. I, with my jets and warbirds and everything I've had, I actually play around with the model up high in landing configuration until I get an amount of flap that comes down to the right point. So when it changes the body angle, when the flap's down, at either idle, whatever power setting I want, it gives me the perfect approach attitude that I'm looking for. So, you know, um, yeah, a drag flap, you know, call that like a Spitfire, you know, the big big flat slab that just comes under the wing. It doesn't change the aerofoil shape on the top. It'll pitch the nose down. A normal flap that's, you know, off the end of the wing that changes the camber of the upper of the wing that creates more lift will actually pitch the nose up. So, 
you know, it's appreciating what each one of those will do to how it affects your aeroplane to, you know, whether you need nose down or nose up mixing. Yeah. And then, you know, once again, though, the problem with model aeroplanes, it's easy in a full size because we've got speed indication instantly. We don't have that on the model. And if you're suddenly flying 10 kilometres an hour faster that you can't really tell with your model, it's producing a lot more lift than it was 10 k's an hour slower. Mm. So therefore, the mixing you have might not be right because you mixed it for A speed with A setting, you know, and I know radios are getting clever and clever and they've got air speeds and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we don't get that third dimensional feel in a model airplane. So, you know, flaps is probably one of the most challenging, you know, control surfaces on any model airplane because they can bring you unstuck quicker than probably any other surface. But, you know, but in the same respect, it's the most awesome thing on any model to be able to just basically put them down, hang it with a good attitude, and it just pushes to the ground and touches down so nicely. So, so make yeah. me want to get out there and fly and practice all this. <laughs> well, I'm going to come know. to Mildura and stay there and we can just do some training. That's a good point, though. Like even people that, you know, have been flying for, for, for many years, you know, we never hear about, Sort of getting some extra training, having someone sit, sit, stand next to us and say, you know, how are we going? But I've talked, I think, about I'm very skeptical about some of the instructors and their abilities to teach, you know, people how to fly. Uh, that I don't think that a lot of instructors have a structure in how they do it. It's almost like the bare minimum. Yep. Uh, can you take off? Yep. Can you fly a circuit? Yep. Okay. Well, you're good. The yours gone solo. There you go. And we don't instill sort of those those practices but I, I you know I don't mind anybody coming up to me and giving me a few tips because I have that expectation of how I'd like the plane to look and if I'm not doing it right and somebody tells me hey try doing this like Cliff McIver yeah. saying next time release everything I literally now is drummed into me by Cliff that now it was so profound the chat that I had with him that's the first thing that's going to come into my mind is let go yeah well you you fly you fly got an electric ducted pan haven't you I do, yes. Do you fly it very often? Um, you know what I do? Well, I broke it, but it's I just, okay. literally today oh. the replacement airframe came. So, um, okay. But I do fly it. Um, I try to fly it a bit before I, I take my jet out. Yep. Well, next to all I was going to say, you know, instead of practising this with your jet, and I've done it with all my jets, but go out there with your ducted fan or anything, you know, something with, a little bit more performance than a 3D aeroplane, as in, yeah. you know, flight flight critical, something that's got a little bit of bite to it. You know, your average trainer or your 3D aeroplane and all that, they're pretty forgiving. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty honest aeroplanes. Take your, your ducted fan jet out, go up reasonably high, you know, a couple of mistakes high, and just slow it down. Go to idle and slow it down and hold full up elevator and see what it does and see how tightly you can get the thing going grumpy in the sky. And then just let go of the sticks and see what happens. And then practice it again and practice it again so you you get a bit of motor memory on. Oh, if I see something do this, if I let it go, it's gone. That's a and great you'll, you'll you'll soon realise how fast it will accelerate because, you know, like your Viper, there's no big propeller out the front that's trying to slow it down when you point at the ground. Jets yeah. wind up pretty fast. 
It's so got, it's got a were... stupid gyro in it though, and I want to get rid of that because that just dulls everything for me. But, um, <laughs> and I, I, Don't get me started on gyros. Yeah, I want to. I want to take. I want to. I want to no. turn all the gain down to zero so it has no effect. Because I think I actually believe that the model will fly better without the the Spectrum AS3X gyro in it. But it's it's yeah it 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 definitely it's a really really good point. That's the model I should be practicing touch and goes with kind of thing because it does fly differently to every any other propeller plane that I've got. And I've got very forgiving planes generally, my entire fleet, except for the, the EDF and the uh, and the turbine are sort of not not as forgiving. But yeah. um, that's a, that's well, a really good go up, Go up two mistakes high, put your flat landing flap and your gear down and just fly circuits as slow as you can. You know, it should sit there and start waggling the wings, but you, you then resist the urge to start throwing aileron in because all you're going to do is a down-going aileron creates more lift, which deep stalls that wing, so then it spins it's in the opposite direction. So and just get used to flying it right on its limit and you're two mistakes high. So if you do the snap spin on final, all you're going to do is let go of the stick, push the power up slowly, smoothly apply the elevator and it'll climb out. But, you know, like we say, it's the stuff we don't practice, but... To me, that separates these people from these people because, you know, I've experienced it a lot in my life because I've flown, like I said, some pretty grumpy aeroplanes for people that, you know, touch wood, if you weren't on the sticks, I think they would have lost it. And they appreciate that and I appreciate the chance of getting to fly it. But, geez, you learn fast when it's someone else's aeroplane and, you know, you're struggling to keep the thing in the sky with all your ability. Well, okay, let's summarise, right, because we're, we're going to have to wrap up. But yep. we've got... Yep. So a few of my takeaways is um, uh, slow your mind down when you're at the field before you're about to fly and just get yourself into gear. Um, yep. uh, position yourself and, and stand with your your, your legs um, apart and your your shoulders parallel to the strip. Um, yep. You know, take a breather before you take off. F- try to fly very neat circuits um, and, and practice that. We talked a lot about landing. Start every flight with a full, complete four, pat, four legs of the circuit. So, you know, you take off crosswind, downwind, base, fly up the runway, then go into doing loops, rolls, anything you want to do. And when you decide you want to land, come back into flying all the way up your runway, go crosswind, downwind, base, and land. Yep, that's so right. So build that structure, even, you know, because it's so easy just to take off, turn left, go straight into a loop or a climb or a small turn or a roll. Just discipline yourself to fly four legs of the circuit and see how close you got to the centre of the runway because that's going to give you a good idea on how your reference looks for once you've flown round and going to do those same four legs to land where you want to land. Yep, that's really good. Then we talked about landing and setting up, using your elevator and setting your elevator, then controlling the descent rate with your throttle. Um, yeah, we talked you about- set your speed with the elevator and if it doesn't move, the speed's got to stay constant. Yep. Yep. Um, and then, of course, we talked a bit about flaps. And then I suppose the other big takeaway is just go out there and practice. Exactly. And Repetition. challenge yourself. But put yourself two mistakes high, three mistakes high. Don't don't practice your stall spin turning final at circuit hot because you get one chance at that recovery and sometimes you don't even get that. So, you know, it's, yeah, have fun. I, I take a boomerang trainer up and, you know, take it to the 400 feet. We can find it with our field, shut the engine off. And then I dive it vertically at the ground at the center of our strip and then, you know, pull up, set the thing up and come around and fly, you know, 
an abbreviated circuit and touch down right in front of myself just to, you know, because there's there's zero room for error on that because I can't power up and go round. If I get slow and low, it's all over. So yeah, that's how point. I you know, put myself in my uncomfortable zone just to see what the nerves reaction and the ability is still like. That's a good point. I'm, I can't wait to get out to the field and practice. <laughs> I, I, I love discipline, disciplining people and or giving them something just to go out there and strive for because that's what makes us all better. Well, that's the big one. Create an expectation in your mind. Give yourself a standard that you want to fly to and, and fly to that standard and you'll automatically become a better pilot. Don't be complacent yeah. and say, oh, well, I've got the plane on the ground. It's like, okay, great, but um, it looked like a dog's breakfast and next time it may not get down in that that same situation. Yeah. It might be in a few different pieces uh, rather than one. Yeah. I, I yell out quite often at our field because for full size ones, you've got to do three takeoffs and landings every 90 days to stay current, but you're not allowed to do them in the one touchdown. And you see that pretty often, three big bounces, and you're like, okay, you're current for the next 90 days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like I like ripping people and saying that fifth the fifth landing was really good. Then that was good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> First two weren't so good. Right, well, uh, Michael Timms, I'm so glad I got you on. And this is going to be one of those podcasts where I will be replaying to myself as I drive to the field, you know, and fly to events. I'm just going to play this podcast to refresh my memory so that I can learn. You know, I've learned a lot and I've got some some stuff to practice now. And uh, Appreciate it. Really, really thank you, Michael, for joining me. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on again. It was fun. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. A big thank you to Michael Timms for sharing some thoughts on how to fly a model aeroplane. I found it really valuable and I hope you did. Uh, I'm going to go out and practice landings now uh, a lot uh, and take in some of his advice because as I said, the the landings are the most important maneuver that we can possibly do. Uh, So a big thank you for for everyone for joining the podcast and listening to it. I know that you can choose not to and you choose, but you've chosen to. So big thank you. Don't forget to subscribe if you do like the podcast and Whilst you're at it, jump over to our Instagram page, Facebook and YouTube. You'll find some uh, videos over there as well that you might be able to enjoy. enjoy. Flat Out RC is the place to go for all your aero modelling content coming from the land down under. Big thank you to those listening abroad as well. Hope you're enjoying it as well. I'll be back next week. We may be talking some gliding next week, so stay tuned. Thanks for joining me. Not looking back, eyes on the freeway, Bonnie and Clyde, a classic cliche, we're on the run, this is what we waited for.